was a year and a half ago that we got together in New York. Yeah. And uh, I got sunburned there too. You did, I remember. <laughs> you know, and actually, you know, like right now I'm freezing cold because it's under 70 and you're warm as can be. I'm um, but instead we find ourselves in Florida as opposed to the the beautiful backdrop of of man behind us and the skyscrapers and so forth. Now, uh, instead, we have nature. Yeah. And when we think back to 2019 in the summer, it was yourself and myself and Peter Bogosian, and then you and I spoke directly about critical race theory. Right. Um, I think we tried to warn people at that time. Yeah. Like what was coming, how it was going to come in, the fact that it was everywhere and in everything. Right. Um, and I, I think that people... It started to help people understand things, but I still don't believe that they were ready for it. No. I, I think, honestly, people have to see it. Right. They have to see it just kind of either get right in their face so it interrupts their life, the way they live, it gets into their kids, maybe at school or whatever, shows up at their workplace, and they say, what is this? What is going on? Or they see a gr just gigantic violation of our norms. Mm -hmm. And that's what we saw, of course, all last summer. Um, following the death of George Floyd, we just saw a complete disruption of the norms of American society. All of a sudden, riots are to be defended. All of a sudden, we all have to take up the cause for racial justice while mayhem is going on in the downtowns of so many cities. Um, night after night after night. In some cities like Portland and Seattle for months, not even weeks, just mm -hmm. months. And so those disruptions, um, you know, at first there's excuses. Oh, well, it's COVID. So people are burning off their energy. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's, that. and then all of a sudden it starts to become less and less plausible. You hear the leaders back it up. You hear, um, business leaders, religious leaders, uh, government leaders. We have to bail them out of jail, the whole thing. And so at that point, people started to notice and um, those explanations, I guess, became more relevant. It would have been nice if they would have heard us before. <laughs> would, yeah. have been, would have been okay uh, by me. But, I mean, we were talking at the time, yeah. you know, what is this going to lead to? Are they going to try to start a race war? Are we going to face uh, an attempted revolution? I mean, mm -hmm. by fall of 2019, we were saying that repeatedly. In like, London. The, in London, yeah. The goal is to have a complete social and cultural revolution. Um, and... I guess people just have to see it. And now it's here. People see it. Right. And so from the summer of 2019 to now, how much change has there really have, have we had happen in real time? How much of that change was already prepared where we already saw what was going to happen? And then the realization of that, you talked about George Floyd. And it was within just days, if even hours, that major corporations all over the United States, uh, other media institutions and so forth, uh, all of our major league sports institutions, all of our major religious institutions were all calling for, you know, what? For systemic Total change. systemic change, yeah, right. new system. And this is the thing. Um, I've been trying to tell people this for years. I think we probably talked about it on the rooftop. The memory doesn't serve. When you have an ideology like critical race theory, you have a, a mindset, a worldview like critical race theory, what it's going to do is it's it's going to constantly prepare because it believes the world is in a constant state of, emer of emergency. 
Critical race theory derives from Herbert Marcuse, largely the repressive tolerance essay, mm -hmm. and he says in that the entire world is in that constant state of emergency where we could tip into fascism at any point. So the activists are motivated in this way. They're right. constantly producing materials, mm -hmm. constantly producing diversity training materials, right. ready to deploy in HR departments, ready to deploy in schools, educational curricula, ready to deploy. And what I've been trying to tell people is if you bring this ideology into your institution, your affinity group, your business, mm -hmm, your country, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. your state, your church, whatever, it is guaranteed that eventually what is going to happen is you're going to have what I've been referring to as a precipitating event. You're right. going to have a moment where something happens like George Floyd dying mm -hmm. in Minneapolis. And then the next thing you know, it's like the ideology goes into action and the entire society, the entire organization, the entire company, the entire church, whatever it is, has to polarize around that issue. And the polarizing thing was this absolutely intolerant, absolutely race-obsessed mm -hmm. ideology that people have slowly been getting inculcated with. And meanwhile, you have massive amounts of money for some reason or another where people have been dumping in to make sure that those materials, you right. know, the nature of our world today is, to put it just completely frankly, is activist billionaires. Right. And they just dump money into these kinds of projects. That's even without having to say, well, the universities have been coddling it and nourishing it. Um, I think Brett Weinstein called it at one point academic affirmative action or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's only a matter of time. You bring this way of thinking in, the activists are constantly pushing it, they're relatively small in number, and eventually you're gonna have a precipitating event where everything fractures around that event and everybody has to take sides. And it's not just taking sides, there is no neutral, it's do or die. It's all consuming, and we saw that. You know, everybody's changing it first, there's black squares on their social media, black lives matter this, black lives matter that. On my flight here, I saw a young woman wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, and it's like, you know, the whole brand thing. It just is going to catch fire, and you're gonna be asked, which side of this issue are you on, and there right. is no neutral. That is the mentality behind the ideology manifesting. That's what we were trying to warn people about. Like, this thing has crept into everything, and it's only a matter of time. You can think of it like, um, like laying down pine needles and tinder everywhere. It's right. only a matter of time till that spark hits. And you've got a forest fire on your hands. And we saw that. The spark hit. We had a forest fire on our hands. And when that happens, then, there really is no other position to take except for the position that you're being told that you have to take, which is in complete agreement with this need for systemic change. Correct. You're either 100% behind systemic change or you support the status quo. Right. And the status quo is the evil thing that led to the bad thing happening as it was interpreted through the ideology. That's how it's going to happen every single time. It's going to happen in every country that this comes into, every state, every city, or if we switch, every church, every business, every uh, state department, mm -hmm. um, every university, every school, every household, when your children bring it back from school, it's going to be the same thing. I've heard, of course, countless parents reach out to me and say, you know, mostly it's late teens, early 20s. Mm. Children, especially daughters, have just written off the family, you know, utterly fractured you have the wrong attitude attitude about what's happening with black lives matter with black lives whatever that means you're a racist and every single thing will, that every single thing where this comes in will fracture and polarize and divide 
And there is no discussion in the matter. There's not to be any discussion, no, because you're siding with a unthinkable evil. Right. The the ideology or critical race theory posits that you are literally either a critical race theorist or you support white supremacy or therefore are in some sense complicit with or identical with white supremacy itself. And they, of course, have a very expansive definition, therefore, of white supremacy. Right. Um, but that's it. You either go full on into the party line saying things often that don't match reality, that sometimes don't make sense, literally don't make sense, or you must somehow support this horrendous status quo that has white supremacy baked into it that led to this terrible thing that was the polarizing and precipitating event that eventually will always come. Something will happen. Somebody will screw up. Somebody will say something stupid. Somebody will will be, you know, arrested or, or put into a, a situation with the police where force is used and something bad will happen. It's always going to come about sooner or later. And the, um, the ideology waits. And then what it calls for is absolute and utter systemic change. The old system is said to be the problem. Now we're going to have a whole new system. So we need to do system changing. We, we need to look at this is old, this is terrible, everything about it must be dismantled. Yep. It needs to first be disrupted. Disrupt, disrupt what's happening, dismantle what's there and what created it. And then you'd say, well, what are they going to replace it with? Well, that's an imagination, right? We're going to reimagine. We're going to imagine new possibilities. But they don't, the activists typically don't have much of a plan. The plan is put us in power and don't worry, we'll figure it out. Right. And so in a sense, and I think people are now perceiving this, where if we were talking about this in, in Manhattan in 2019, nobody would have, they thought we were, we were just cynics. Um, mm -hmm. But the truth is, people are perceiving that this is very deeply a power grab. Right. And in many cases, a grift. They're, people are making money hand over fist, mm -hmm. pushing this stuff. Um, selling diversity trainings to workplaces at tens of thousands of dollars an hour sometimes, um, selling t-shirts like I saw in the, the airport. Uh, you're, you're, people are awa awakening to the fact that this is a way to redistribute power and resources to people who don't have much more of a plan than if you put us in charge, then what we're going to do, and this is, this is the key, this is their whole mentality in, in like six words. It's perfect the culture, save the world. That's their whole mentality in six words. Perfect the culture and save the world. Save the world from what? Well, all of the evils and the oppressions and uh, all of the, the inequities, all of the things that are unfair, um, the unjust distribution of resources and opportunities, all of the harms, the traumas that have been done throughout history and therefore still persist, um, even though they don't still persist in anything. I mean, just the vaguest specter of what they once were. Uh, but that's what you're saving the world from. It's this idea. Again, we can draw back to Herbert Marcuse if we want the critical theorist, you know, in the 50s and 60s writing about liberation as the liberation movements took over um, from South America first, but also South Asia, um, Vietnam in particular. The Liberation Front there was called the Viet Cong in, right. in other terms that people are more familiar with. And this liberation movement swept up and they were going to, as, as Marcuse was, was having it, say in Eros and Civilization, which you wrote in 55, um, we're going to liberate people from the constraints of a capitalist consumer system mm -hmm. that keeps them enslaved and... Uh, in Eros and civilization, with Eros, you can tell it's Freudian. You know, this is going to be about Eros. It's going to be about sex. Um, but they have this 
they have to they have to take their their libido and, and repress it and then and then sublimate that into productive work mm-hmm. instead of just being free to live as you want free from police oppression free from military free from imperialism free from the capitalist engine the 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 need to be productive the want to be productive the want to build a better world and accomplish more we're going to be free from all of that that's what that's the system that they want to disrupt mm-hmm. um in their words, you know, it's they, they see it as all imperialism and control and ruining people's ability to just live, you know, wild and free. And so we, we look back to, if you recall, I think it was in 2019 in December, we were together in Orlando. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of deep diving on, on Karl Popper mm-hmm. and was trying to, to show a lot of folks that his understanding of the paradox of tolerance is that that's not something that's being followed by today by those that would claim to want to forward the, the concept of open society. And that's I shared with you the uh, work by Herbert Marcuse, the uh, repressive tolerance, yeah. and that this is really what's in action. And you absolutely devoured that. Yeah. And you've been spending a tremendous amount of time on that, yeah. um, on your podcasts and yeah. in your articles. And maybe share with everybody just you sure. know, what what is it that you've pulled out of that and what is it that you see repressive tolerance is the logic of the left today mm-hmm. the entire left and everybody who's even kind of involved in supporting them outside of the left you know people who just for whatever reason whether they are going along with it whether they're profiting by going along with it whether they're just too cowardly to stand up to it the logic of the left and largely the logic of society, given how much power and hegemony the left have right now, is this essay, Repressive Tolerance, which was written in 1965, right. um, before the riots of 67 and 68, uh, probably partly leading to those. Herbert Marcuse was a rock star among leftist intelligentsia in the in the 60s. Probably 300,000. Uh, people were paying attention to him with, through, through the left at the time. I don't remember if it's that or 300,000 citations he has on that. Right. It's, it's a very influential piece. It is the logic of the left. The thesis say, sentence of repressive tolerance appears actually pretty close to the bottom. And he, he, he literally says that it's that we absolutely must tolerate movements from the left and we must not tolerate movements from the right. Right. That's a simple, he makes it that simple. Um, Left good, right bad. That's literally the, the, the idea. So he wants to remake the idea of tolerance. What are we going to tolerate in a society? And his argument is, well, if we, he misunderstands or misappropriates Popper and says, well, if we, if we tolerate that which he defines as intolerant, which for him is the right, anything from the right, then will we lend power to, to oppressive regimes. We're trying to maintain oppressive regimes. We lend power to the police to brutalize the citizens. We lend power to, in this in the 1960s, does make sense, to white supremacists to hold down racial minorities. We, we lend power to the militaristic powers in, you know, the big Western hegemony that had followed World War II uh, between the United States and its, its mm-hmm. allies to conquer and take over other parts of the world. We, we, that's what we're defending if we're on the right. And we're also defending this capitalist system that's built up that wants to keep people locked in this pattern of consumerism and that prevents them from being truly free uh, and prevents them from from engaging in a, you know, he refers to it as uh, we don't have a truly democratic system because some people don't have equal participation in it. And so if we side with the right, then 
we have that situation. Uh, we defend that. That's absolutely intolerable, so we can have no tolerance for that. He takes it so far as to justify violence against movements from the right and tolerating violence movements from the left. We just saw this. We just saw this play out literally for eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, following the death of George Floyd forward through the event at the Capitol on the 6th of January this year. So we just saw this absolute tolerance for violence from the left, no tolerance for right. anything even remotely similar from the right. Even a discussion. Even discussion of it. Even right. dis- Because the discussion, he argues, precedes, if you were to go back, he says, you know, and look at, at, at Germany and the interwar period and you were to go in there and interrupt we might have saved the world from auschwitz he says that right and so it's at the moment of the speech that you actually have to stop it and he says this is censorship indeed it's even pre-censorship but Mm -hmm. that it's necessary so for him the logic of that essay is and this is pure totalitarianism it's very difficult to imagine something more totalitarian than this uh, orwellian which it's funny because he also says you know that the other the right is orwellian uh, of course he does. But he's literally advocating not just for censoring speech from people perceived by his movement to be on the right. Mm-hmm. Because that includes a lot of people who are actually not on the right, as we've also seen. Everybody, you know, vaguely right of, I don't know, Mao or something is 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 alt-right now. Right. Um, so all of those people, not only are they to be censored, they're to be pre-censored. Right. And I don't know exactly where pre-censorship operates. It means not being, I can say it means not being able to publish. It means if you create, go, you, know, you know, go create your own social media. No, we'll knock that off. That, that social media platform won't even exist. Right. We will prevent it from even having the opportunity to exist. So we're going to pre-censor that. And it could mean literally either controlling people to prevent them from being able to speak or controlling how they think to prevent them from being able to, to, to think and thus say um, the wrong kinds of thoughts. We have right. to have absolute, and that's where he says repressive tolerance, we have to have absolute repressive tolerance uh, that enables, he says, the flourishing of, of a liberating tolerance. Right. Of a dis- we have to practice a discriminating tolerance against the right in favor of the left in order to overcome all of these evils that he saw in the world. And then many of that you could see echoed in what Kendi has done. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, if you read Stamp from the Beginning, Kendi is a huge fan of Angela Davis. Angela Davis's doctoral mentor was Herbert Marcuse. <laughs> it's a straight line. It, it, it's a straight line there. Yep. Um, and you see exactly the same thing. So he, his is, he uses this word policy to get around the fact that he's talking about systems. Right. He even says at one point, I use the word policy because when I would say systems, nobody understood. And they said, well, what are the systems? What does systemic mean? Da, da, da. And he said, I just realized that policy, and he says, he, when I say policy, I mean policy at every level. Mm-hmm. Policy in terms of actual, um, you know, like legislative policy or administrative policy or company policy, but also the, the implicit policies between individuals that govern social interaction, which he means systemic. Right. So policy and systemic mean the same thing for Kendi. And his idea is, well... If the policy creates inequitable outcomes, mm-hmm. then it's racist. So it has to be suppressed. And if the policy, or repressed, I guess, if the policy creates anti-racist outcomes, in other words, if Kendi likes it, because that's ultimately the uh, arbiter there, if it creates equitable outcomes, it's 
now anti-racist, and it has to be tolerated. So he even says explicitly, Ibram Kendi explicitly says that we have to use, the, 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 the answer to past discrimination is future discrimination. Correct. That if we have a discrimination that's creating equity, then it's anti-racist. So we need to use, right. we need to discriminate, which is going to have repression built into it, in order to achieve this equity goal, uh, equal outcomes. Strategic racism, strategic discrimination. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. It's a strategic application of racism and discrimination in order to make up for the past and make up for the kind of phantom world of discrimination they believe in now. The system, you know, they even say with systemic racism, it doesn't matter if any individual is racist or if anybody has even any racist intentions. Right. It's just the impact. Right. And that impact is, are there differences in outcomes? And if there are differences in outcomes, it must be the system of racism that caused it one way or another, all very mysteriously. And so that's the thing that, that, that's got to be remade according to this logic of repressive tolerance. Mm. Um, and by the means of repressive tolerance, which have now gone all the way to including the things that Marcusa actually advocated for, including uh, tolerating violence, applying violence. Right. Um, he does say, to be fair, he says in the essay that... All forms of violence are unethical. And then he, in the literally next sentence says, but when has making history been concerned with ethics? Mm -hmm. uh, ethics are not relevant to making history, to changing the world. Right. So he's advocating openly for violence, but only in one direction, that asymmetry has become the story. Mm. That asymmetry is the thing everybody's feeling. And when they try to call out the double standard, they find it does nothing. It mm -hmm. achieves nothing. You point out the hypocrisy, nothing happens. Why? Because... In the logic that has taken over the left, the repressive tolerance logic, the hypocrisy is, it is moral. You can't catch somebody in hypocrisy if they believe they're acting morally. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what's, what's happened in our world. And you see that straight line to Kendi with his, we have to apply discrimination, whether it's against Asians in schools, whether in colleges or in these uh, kind of advanced high schools around the country where it used to be you take a test, you get in, and then all of a sudden the enrollment was 70-something percent Asian, and they're like, it's white supremacy. The right. test is white supremacy because there's, don't say it's too many Asians, but because there's too many Asians. So, so we can't do anything like we've done it before. Basically, you're saying that in everything that we do, we must be intolerant of the past systems. All the systems need to be replaced. Right, so, and, those, and those views that that are connected to those systems. In other words, that which we have done in the past, like all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that's, that's all got to go. Yeah. We've got to be intolerant against that. You can't even, it has to be censored and even pre-censored. You can't even make that case anymore. Right. And trying to make that case, if this logic continues much further, right. to just repeat the opening of the Declaration of Independence right. or to articulate the Constitution as a as the ultimate document of law in the United States, mm -hmm. that would be upholding the system. That will have to be pre-censored. You will not even be able to defend that which is there. And then you're going to have to turn to people like Kendi, who have appointed themselves as the ones, oh, I know how to tell when when equity is happening, when equity equity isn't happening. Right. Um, I know how to, to find it. Uh, doesn't matter that it's the poorest minority with the least social opportunity coming over with the biggest language barrier that's now dominating all of these schools. It's white supremacy that they're dominating admissions to these schools by virtue of their merit, which is a combination right. of talent and work. Yep. They're working hard to get into these schools. Nope, that doesn't matter. Unequitable. Right. Because other racial groups are getting in less. Right. 
So you're looking at a complete change in systems that we're, we're moving out of what has been the way that we conduct ourselves within our society, within our civilization, which more or less is like creating a reset of all of civilization, more or less, and if we take a look back in history, uh, Robespierre and the Jacobins in in France yeah. were declaring a year zero, resetting the entire calendar. Yeah, they renamed you know, take, taking taking over the churches, taking over the government, taking over everything. Yep. Uh, declaring the um, the Committee on Public Safety. Yeah. yeah. Now we're going to have a whole new world <laughs> led by the Committee on Public Safety. We'll tell you what's safe for you, right. and you do what's safe, and now we'll have a you know we'll we'll perfect the safety and we'll change the world, save the world, and that's for your behalf. For oh, your safety. Well, how kind of them. Yes. How, so, a little bit of echoes of that, possibly, in what's happening now. I mean, it's echoes throughout history. It's the yep. same process over and over and over and over again. Um, Mao had his cultural revolution. Yep. He had to get rid of the four olds, the sujo, right. they call them. The old, what is it, ideas, customs, habits, and ways of thinking. Out with the old, in with the new. Yep, yep. we're going to have a whole new Soviet man. That's you know, right. That was what it was for, for Lenin and Stalin. We're going to have the new Soviet man, the perfected man. Marcuse talks about that, by the way, in his essay on liberation, right. 1969. He talks about how maybe man isn't biologically suited for liberation, which means communism, um, essentially. Mm -hmm. Maybe man isn't suited. So we have to biologically right. get man. He's, maybe man's just not biologically suited for this. So maybe we have to change man biologically. <laughs> that's, that's in the that's, essay on liberation. Kind of feels like that's where we're going with things. You know, and everybody's more aware, yeah. you know, now of Pol Pot and his year Pol zero Pot. project. Yeah. We're going to destroy everything old. Mm -hmm. We're going to start over. Welcome to year zero. And the buzzword around it today, we don't have to beat around the bush, is the Great Reset. That is the, we're going to have a Great Reset now. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're going to own nothing. We're going to be happy. Uh, everybody's seen the video now. I don't know how that works. Western values will have been pushed to their breaking point. We, we enjoy a circular economy. We, we now reset the way that we're doing, we've been doing everything in terms of our uh, distribution of revenue, the way that we do things such as private property, That's right. the way that we do things in terms of the idea of work, the idea of transportation and travel, the role of religion, the role of education, nope. uh, the, the role of our actual family structures and so forth. All of that in terms of what's been charted out needs to change now. Right. And now we're going to have this new model based on equity, mm -hmm. which is not equality of outcome in the sense where it's actual equality. Right. It's equality of outcome tilted for the um, transgressions of the past, right. as well as the alleged transgressions of the present. Right. And so now we're going to rebalance the system artificially uh, to correct for the past and to otherwise make equal outcome based on those kinds of calculations. And that's where we connect back to what we talked about in New York when we talked about critical race theory. Um, the role of critical race theory has been, as I've put it a couple of times recently, to be the lockpick to the gates of Western civilization because everybody in the Communist Party going back to the 1920s has known that certain countries, the United States is one of them, China was one of them, are very, very sensitive around the issue of race, and that countries that have that kind of um, heterogeneity around identity are going to be very, very vulnerable to this, and you're going to be able to whip up a population, and you're going to be able to break them down and demoralize them because it's an issue that's so sensitive. When you get down to the identity level of, of issues, it's so sensitive mm -hmm. that people basically lose their mind and can't discuss it. Right. rationally any longer. The, the facts don't matter. All that matters is that this is about who I am. 
and how I feel as who I am and learning to identify as that. And you see, that, again, a straight line from the Communist Party in the 20s. They did it in China with Han supremacy. And, you know, the, the party appointed itself as the good Hans who are going to shepherd the racial minorities. It's in perfect parallel to what we have now mm-hmm. with with good whites and white supremacy here in the United States. And in the goal, Marcuse was very clear. We have to basically whip up the racial minorities, use them as a wedge against Western civilization, which, by the way, for people who don't realize, Marcuse was born in Germany at the end of the uh, 19th century. And so he ends up in the military through World War One, but he saw no combat. Right. And then he comes out of the military into the interwar period and um, ends up teaming up with the, the Institute for Social Research, becoming prominent within Frankfurt. it. That's the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. Mm-hmm. Integral within that, that's building up. Then all of a sudden, um, it's important to notice that these guys were primarily Jewish, not because of the, the views that they would have as Jews, but because Hitler's power was, was rapidly waxing at that point. And so they fled to wisely. America. Mm-hmm. First to Geneva and then to America. So America takes in Marcusa. He works for the OSS. He works for the federal government to try to overcome the Nazis and try. This guy is an out and out Marxist. Mm-hmm. He is a communist working for our federal government in the highest levels of like the intelligence community, trying to, you know, stop the Nazis. Good. But also, um, what else is he, you know, working on in there? And then he has this exact same idea, the exact same idea. Oh, these racial minorities. He's basically this this wonderful country where I live comfortably. I'm writing these ridiculous books and yeah. becoming a rock star. I'm a big professor at this university. First it was what Columbia, then he's at Brandeis. There was another one, and then he ends up at UCSD. Right, um, San Diego. Yeah, and so he's got all of this like excellent life given to him by America, where he's welcomed in in protection from the Nazis, and he's like, I hate this society. Mm-hmm. We need to tear this apart, and we're going to agitate racial lines to do it. It was his exact. His exact plan. Mm-hmm. He writes it in One Dimensional Man, the bringing together the outsiders, the racial minorities, and the leftist intelligentsia in the universities to create a wedge, which mm-hmm. at that point, Gramsci was getting translated into English. Mm-hmm. Uh, he probably knew Gramsci before Gramsci went to prison. Right. And then now we're going to march through these institutions, taking up, you know, Rudy Deutschke's idea. We're going to march through these institutions. Why did Deutschke had that idea. Well, he had read Gramsci, but he also saw that Mao did it, and it worked when Mao did it. Right. So we're going to march through the institutions and take over. And this is that, and we're going to use again. It's that lockpick. We're going to use race. We're going to use identity factors to do it. Why? Because it works. Right. And even within the African American community now, where they have been, you know, tried. There's an attempt to try to just identify them according to their immutable characteristics. That you would have this now splitting and fracturing within the African-American community between black and brown. Yep. And then talking about brown privilege. Brown privilege is a concept uh, maybe not quite 10 years old, if I recall its first thing. But over the summer, once George Floyd died, we now we have in parallel, you know, we've, we've now all heard of white fragility and Robin D'Angelo and white complicity with Barbara Applebaum's a little less known, but it's actually the engine underneath uh, white fragility. So we ha- we know these ideas around privilege and fragility and complicity. And then, wham, this summer, all of a sudden we have brown complicity, brown fragility. Brown people are now being brought in to these trainings at their workplaces and told, you're brown, that means you're anti-black and you uphold white supremacy. And we're going to interrogate your feelings of defensiveness. That's called brown fragility. 
the whole rigmarole. And these poor people are like, what just happened? Right. How did this happen? And then meanwhile, they're going to trainings that they're, you know, different work, workplace HR trainings, going to conferences or whatever. And they're being told, well, you're classified as white now. And look at how many white people have flooded into the field in the past two years. And like, you just changed the pie chart. You just changed the labels. You put right. us all in white. Uh, same thing, you know, it's white supremacy with Asians getting in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, so all of a sudden, you know, what we see now is that wedge issue around race that was cooked up by Marcusa, or really by the Communist Party 30 years, 40 years in advance of Marcusa's work, really put into play by Marcusa, basically grifting off of the most dissatisfied edge of the civil rights movement, that dissatisfaction that even Martin Luther King expressed in part of his letter from Birmingham jail, where he was becoming impatient mm. with the good white liberal who, you know, cares but won't do anything. Right. Right. So there's that impatience and dissatisfaction, and I can understand that. And he's tapping into that in a very cynical and um, appropriative way. You know, he's, he's making use of this very intentionally. Putting it into his 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 student Angela Davis, mm -hmm. who supported all kinds of wonderful things, yeah, right. Cuba, the Cuban yep. regime, Stalin. She apologized for for the prisons. I think East Germany. She said that this is a wonderful place, and it's just misunderstood. Jim Jones. A lot of people don't right. know she had written this San passionate Francisco. letter. Yep in support of brother Jim Jones. That's right. and it, People think that Jim Jones was a religious lunatic. He wasn't, he was a communist. Mm -hmm. And his commune was communism. And then he had them right. all literally drink the Kool-Aid and uh, yeah. off they go. And so Angela Davison supported this. And then she informs this thing in the late 70s, it formed in 77 called the Combahee River Collective. Combahee River Collective was this collection of what are, are known as queer black feminists. So you have radical feminists who are also black liberationists who in this case happened to all be lesbians and, or nearly all be lesbians. And so they were involved in the radical queer politics, which differed from gay pride. Mm -hmm. Um, one being more liberal and one being more radical, uh, wanting to, you know, tear up the roots of society. Right. And so they give this Combahee River Collective queer black feminism. And that's where intersectionality got its, you know, mm -hmm. that's where the, where the bubbling pot of intersectionality came from that eventually uh, Kimberly Crenshaw wrote when she was outlining that idea with critical race theory. The full articulation of it. Yeah, yeah. and so this this all has this long pedigree that all boiled up into this one set of radical right. activists. And I say that they were que queer black feminists who cooked up intersectionality. Why? Because the brown people, the Asian people, the gay people, the everything people had to carry water for intersectionality and solidarity. Mm-hmm. And then what we found out this summer with things like brown fragility, brown complicity, oh, brown people are fragile too, and they're anti-black too, and they, uh, you know, what is it, 2% or something, 3% of uh, of Latinos support Latinx, so mm -hmm. they're all apparently anti-gay now because they don't support this ridiculous right. word. Right. Um, which and I is, would never support that. I can't, I, nobody supports it. Right. Like 2% of people support it. And... So intersectionality was designed to get all of these different groups to carry water for queer black feminism, which is not black lesbians. It is a very specific ideology that is rooted in black liberationism. That's your very radical side of, the, it's like what the civil rights movements, when, when, when Martin Luther King and his associates would leave the protests and say, that's not us. Right. It was, it's that. Black liberationism, which 
was largely Marcuse's product through Angela Davis. Um, that combined with radical feminism and then intersectionality is sort of turning those two things on each other. Right. And because these people are all living in problematize everything land, right. it went viral in their community, created lots of solidarity. But what it is is mafia solidarity. It all kicks up, as we now see, to the people pushing. And it's not, again, identity. It's the people pushing queer black feminism. The people who are more and more and more queer black feminist have more and more and more of the power. And they finally revealed themselves over the summer by basically taking these other minority groups that they've had hold or carry water for them for, for three decades and say, guess what? You're anti-black too. You have to check your privilege, right. your brown privilege, your Asian privilege, your yellow privilege. You've right. got to check those things. Defining the doctrine even more precisely, in other words, that the doctrine becomes much more precise, you know, with each iteration. Right. And they just keep, it's really amazing because they've actually shown that this is what the goal is, is that right. there is a party in the Soviet sense. And that party, or the Leninist sense, if you want, and that party is those people, whether white like Robin D'Angelo, whether black like Ibram Kendi, whether man or woman like the two I just named, or we could pick others, whether um, Latino like Richard Delgado, uh, you, it's the people with that, that politics of queer black feminism as now mediated through intersectionality becomes the party. And right. that party is going to decide how everybody's going to redistribute their privilege, first of all, but then, so primarily cultural resources, and then from there, economic resources, uh, and from there, you know, whatever's ancillary to that. Uh, political power, for sure, is going to be centralized there, though. But it seems like if you take a look back to, like, 1968 and what occurred there in a in a microcosm as opposed to a macro movement, and there, I believe that there was an attempt at a macro movement. Sure. Um, but remember what i think it started in rome but then of course carried over to to, to france and yeah. even continued some in southern california and other places yeah. which remember the chant was was marx mao and marcusa that's right it was that was the chant marcusa was a rock star people yeah. don't realize the relevance of this guy um very important time, figure huge. at the time he was huge his influence over the the radical end of the left was nearly unparalleled. Um, he is, with his repressive tolerance, with the combination of a couple of other thinkers, literally what Antifa became. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it has deeper roots, uh, anti-fascist action or whatever, um, from from the German situation. Mm -hmm. But it has so it has deeper roots. And then it, it, Marcusa and another guy, Franz Fanon, who we don't have to get into, a post-colonial. Mm -hmm. um, thinker from France, uh, Algerian French psychoanalyst, mm -hmm. who said that you have to be violent right. to overthrow your colonizers. Yep. So everything you think of as being colonized, like the curriculum, like somehow Shakespeare, math, everything's colonized. So now you can be violent to decolonize everything. And mm -hmm. that, that's those two thinkers are the overwhelming influence for Antifa today. Um, it's, it's shocking how just close and easy it is to see where this stuff comes from and who are they associated with marx mao no, marcusa right yeah. it's like what's going on here you know what is redistribution what's liberation really about mm -hmm. what are these historical possibilities that marcusa refers to in repressive tolerance he says there are the you know we have to remember certain historical possibilities that are now regarded as utopian possibilities right what does he mean 
Right. He means communism. Yep. Maybe it's not pure Marxist communism it where the right. workers have formed a proletariat, an enlightened, uh, you know, working class that realizes its true nature and its true oppression and how wise it is to be able to now lead a revolution and in a new society where everything's going to be great, everything's going to be perfected and fine. Now it's not that. Now it's kind of these outsiders, the racial minorities. Oh, and the professors. Right. The leftist intelligentsia. Not all professors. we got to get most of the professors out first. The leftist intelligentsia. Listen to science. Yep. Now, you, you think about this now, where in your previous work, still, field of study, mathematics, yeah. you take a look at everything in, in terms of sociology, everything in terms of corporate governance, everything in terms of of faith paradigms, everything in terms of, it doesn't matter what category you, you, you actually talk about, it's in everything now. And this is what we talked about in 2019. Yeah. And so now you're starting to see the blossoming of where the seeds were. And we were trying to point out, look, someone has planted the seeds in education, in the medical field. We talked about health equity this past year. Yeah. You know, the environmental movement. And if you take a look at Extinction Rebellion and their key tenets is that it pretty much mirrors for the most part, there are some differences, uh, what you would see with the Black Lives Matter movement. Yep. And so it's the same thing, but yet finding a different avenue that people have an affinity towards and can care about and right. so forth. Yeah, and, and new, new jargon and slightly new activism, but it's the same underlying model. It's something is unjust, something is inequitable. Now let's figure out what the right buzzwords are for this affinity. Let's graft it onto that thing or plant the seed if you right. want even mathematics, um, and the method is always the same. We're going to go in, we're going to change the culture to save the world. So we're gonna now come in, we're gonna worry about the sociology of how mathematics is taught, right. the sociology of how math departments are run, the sociology <laughs> of, of mathematics conferences. We're gonna worry about the sociology around mathematics. Right. And then the next step is gonna be to say, well, where did the sociology come from? Well, it must be something to do with the subject itself. So right. now we have license to start changing the discipline. Right. We're going to teach different mathematics. We're going to open things up. Two plus two equals five. How, who, right. who saw that? I didn't see that coming. Right. That they would actually glom on to two plus two equals five just to make me wrong on the internet, which was... But that would be the natural progression of things. It, well, it is. Nat that's how it all started. So the two plus two equals five story, in kind of its briefest form, is that I may, somebody asked me in private, would they say that two plus two equals five or what? What would they say? And I said, no, it's two plus two equals, it doesn't matter. Right. But four is the hegemonic answer. So power is baked into four. Right. And so then I made this joking thing, this little meme, and I put it on the internet and it said something like two plus two equals four, a white Western perspective in mathematics that excludes other possible values or something like this. And it snowballed from there because it turned out I hit a precipitating event for them. Right. They had already been trying to forward into education a certain ethno-mathematics framework. This has actually about a 10-year pedigree in the academic literature. They've been cooking this stuff up, conferences dedicated to it. It was already, we talked about it when we were in London, it was already mm -hmm. happening by law in, mm -hmm. in Seattle, in Washington State's education. It's now in Oregon's. It's now making its way into California's. They're talking about it in New York. It's the goal is to spread it to all 50 states if possible. Mm. And um, the, the whole thing was getting criticized by people saying, oh, they're going to teach two ethno-mathematics means two plus two equals five. 
-hmm. And so we had one of the activists in Washington on Twitter say, this is what I get criticized with. Help me make it into a true statement. And we Mm -hmm. had activists and we had uh, mostly math education professionals. And then we eventually started to have actual, not just mathematicians, but big mathematicians, a fields medalist, Mm -hmm. um, another very famous mathematician who's very well recognized. Uh, I mean, we can name these guys if you want, but I don't think it matters. Very prominent mathematicians coming out and cooking up cockamamie arguments for why two plus two can sometimes equal five. Yep. But it can't. Right. It turns out that that's a terrible, terrible example. Like it's the least easy one to argue almost that you can think of. It just two plus two just doesn't equal five. Right. That's without the whole thing with Orwell. So then that snowballs into, you know, everybody's misinterpreting Orwell. The whole thing was just completely unbelievable. But you're right. It's the logical progression because in postmodernism, it's the standard answer, the one that the system that we've all had must somehow have power baked into it. And that power must be, if we add the critical theory to it, which is what this woke thing is, is postmodern critical theory. It is the logical progression. Yeah. It is the logical progression because postmodernism says that power is baked into whatever the standard answer has to be. We got to the the, the standard given answer, 2 plus 2 equals 4, uh, through power. Right. Somebody had to be authenticated to make that statement. Right. It's not a method. It's not a process. It's not that we could take, you know, some of these shells and two of them here and two of them there and put them together and have four. It's not that. It's not something that simple. It's power. Power right. somehow is involved. So other answers, other possibilities, other potentialities have to be considered. Right. And when you add in the critical theory to that, the critical theory says, oh, well, that's going to be connected to white supremacy. And that's exactly why it's ethno-mathematics. Right. It's going to be con- uh, tied into patriarchy. That's going to be tied into capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's now what we have to look at how, oh, you know, who gets rich off of the idea that two plus two equals four <laughs> and who is therefore being made, being made poor Right. By having to, where are the resources being unjustly distributed because we believe that two plus two equals four, and we're not allowing people who have different feelings about mathematics or who are more interested in the process right. of thinking about math, whether they get the right answer or not. Those people are, you know, maybe they're not good at math, but they like to think about math. Right. Or they like to draw mathematical shapes. Those people should be put forward as well, which is fine in like art land, but it's right. not fine when you're building a bridge or right. building a plane or building a ship. Right. Those things that you you actually have to get the numbers right to make those things work. Or there are consequences that involve, you know, people dying, huge investments lost, and they'd say, oh, well, that's just more capitalism. No, people, that's people's work and livelihood and things they cared about and put energy and effort into. That's their vision. That's their dream. That's the thing that they wanted to bring into the world to improve other people's lives. Yep. Because you know it's improving people's lives. So like, oh, how does a cruise ship improve people's lives? Because people pay to do it, which means they derive value from doing it. Right. Which is the one thing that Marcusa couldn't stand. He right. was like, it's basically these stupid everyday people go to their job and they make their money and then they don't they don't live life. They buy stuff. Right. They like their football game. They want to get their cool car. They want to go on a cruise. Mm-hmm. They want to go to the beach. They don't want to live life. They don't right. want to really enrich themselves. And that's what it all boils down to. Right. And that's why the leftist intelligentsia, the professorate, has to be in charge of everything now. Right. And so you're, you're seeing this change in everything. And uh, it's impacted, let's say, like the travel industry. Yeah. Where this is going to be called to a great extent through the next several years to try to, what you were just explaining with Marcusa, is that 
that same idea is that that is a consumer mindset. Yeah, exactly. That is. Imagine how much more enriching your life would be if you're reading some great book by probably some author that nobody's ever heard of that's not actually that great. Right. Uh, because we had to decolonize the <laughs> curriculum too. But imagine if you were reading the right books. If yep. you were reading One Dimensional Man, which is a charming book, I'll tell you. Imagine if you were reading that instead of going on your cruise and having happiness. Right. If you were happy, you wouldn't be a revolutionary. You have to be miserable right. to be a revolutionary. You have to want things, you have to think everything's so terrible that we want it to change. And that was the plan. That was their idea, you know, 60 years ago, 40 years before that with the Comintern, the Third International, the, Commun the International Communist Party. That was their plan. It's like, we'll make people miserable. Then they'll want a revolution. Then we'll have the utopia on the other side because we know how to manage it. We have the right experts. If we just listen to the right experts, us, then we'll get there. So crushing the entire economy across the world, locking people down for over a year, making sure that they can't spend time with their family and friends and so forth, is giving them the sense to where they can't see hope in the future. Yeah. And that you're going to be the ones that come and then give them that hope. Standard cult. Standard cult indoctrination. Mm -hmm. Step one, create vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Step two, use the doctrine to resolve the vulnerability. So you make people miserable enough and say, aha, we have a magical solution. All you have to do is buy in and people will buy in. Yep. Because it resolves the discomfort. It resolves the dissonance. It resolves the vulnerability issue, whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. um, and people can see the difference between those things to a degree, but it's also possible to, to, to snag people with those. Um, have you ever been involved have you ever, you know, laughed at a racist joke? Well, oh, only a racist would laugh at a racist joke, even if it was involuntary and you didn't mean to. It just caught you off guard or whatever. You must have racist intentions hidden inside you. Have you ever, you know, how much effort have you really put into, you know, uplifting such and such community? Oh, well, maybe you're just not thinking about it. Maybe you're willfully, willfully ignorant of their problem. Doesn't that make you feel kind of like a bad person? Let's interrogate that defensiveness, your white or brown fragility. By the way, did you know that if you were a critical race theorist and you're on the right side of history with this issue, create the vulnerability, offer the doctrinal road out of it. The way that you're living life is killing the planet. You like your cruise ship, you think that's good, but it's destroying the environment. If you just became a radical environmentalist with us, a critical environmentalist with us, you're on the right side of history. We can imagine a whole new world, all new possibilities. Right. You know, details, you know, asterisk, you know, details to be added later. <laughs> so as we move from a real, objective, physical world, an analog world, into a digital, subjective, virtual world. Narrative-driven world. Correct. Subjective, narrative-driven. Mm -hmm. It's not how, okay, Something happened with George Floyd. Let's look at the statistics. What's actually going on with police brutality and use of force mm -hmm. against different, maybe racial groups, or maybe it's different poverty groups, maybe it's different communities in some other way, but we'll say racial groups. Instead of us, let's, let's look at the statistics. It's, I feel like this is happening. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's true. Right. It is, I, it doesn't matter how many actual incidents of real police brutality, especially unjustified police mm. brutality there are, mm. doesn't matter because I feel like this is happening. Right. Which, it, you can be led to feel something, right? right? You can be led to feel something that's not necessarily true. Uh, my favorite example of that is is panic attacks. Mm. Uh, if you've ever had one, 
you think you're dying. You might even think you're having a heart attack. Now imagine you rush to the hospital, you're having a panic attack, you think you're dying, you tell the, you tell the, 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 the person at the check-in, the nurse at the check-in, you're like, I'm having a heart attack. And they say, oh no, and they rush you back, right? And you tell the doctor, I'm having a heart attack. And the doctor hooks the, the EKG on you and is like, you have a fast pulse, but you, your pulse is still going, you know? The evidence right, says right. otherwise. You're now having a panic attack. They, they're now able to tell you're having a panic attack. Mm. And then the thing is, you can't treat the person according to their, their lived experience of feeling like they're having a heart attack. I feel like that subjective experience, if you treated them accordingly, you got out the paddles and hit them, you're going to kill them. Right. Injected whatever it is, you're going to kill them. Right. However, if you say, okay, we acknowledge how you feel, we understand what's going on, this is what's happening, this is what you need to do, we're going to have you breathe, we're going to have you watch this thing, you know, whatever it is that they do to, to calm people down when they're having a panic attack, help them get through that, then you're going to have the right course of treatment. So the objective truth leads to the correct course of treatment. The subjective truth can very easily lead to misdiagnosis. Right, which is where we are right now. Right, exactly. We are, we are badly misdiagnosing what's going on in the world very badly misdiagnosing because we have very um, energetic, zealous radicals who have been trained in this long line of thought to believe that we are in existential crises that are not existential crises or that progress has not actually been happening. It's been Critical race theory holds that racism never got better. We haven't had racial progress. It just hid itself better. It put on a better and better mask, but you can't see it as well. And it's just right under the surface. It was unmasked when Donald Trump, only racists could have voted for Donald Trump. That's why it mainstreamed. That was their argument. And too many people were too ready to believe it. And they, they misdiagnosed what was going on badly misdiagnosed what was going on and now we're having this you know oh well we have to put this in schools we have to put this in this we have to put this in that has to be in everything it has to take over the Mm -hmm. churches has to be in everything because they've misdiagnosed something that was going on they misdiagnosed something almost like class consciousness arising in the so-called deplorables Mm -hmm. um and saying no more of this manipulated environment we live in no more of this you know apology for america everywhere we turn no more of this uh we're going to stand up for ourselves and we're going to be happy about who we are as a people big shift big misdiagnosis and now because we had a misdiagnosis it's basically we've they're trying to put those paddles Mm -hmm. on the chest of western civilization but the thing that a lot of people don't realize is the activists have said so for decades they want the patient to die because then we can have their new liberated right. world. That's right. And so that's, I mean, we're even seeing people that um, both you and I, and I would have had serious disagreements with over the past 10, 12 years. Yeah. All of a sudden we're watching TV last night and yeah. Naomi Wolf pops up and yeah. is basically saying the exact same things that we are. Yeah, exactly the same thing. Super progressive activist for years and years. Yeah. Very articulate woman, very different views and saying exactly the same stuff, right. exactly the same things. Calling for a return to sanity. It, that's what we need. We need a very broad return to sanity before those paddles get stuck on the chest. People ask me all the time, they say, you know, well, what's the end goal of critical race theory? What's the end goal of critical theory or whatever? It doesn't look like this will work. It doesn't look like any of it would work. They tell me that all the time. It's and I'm like, you, you don't understand. <laughs> the po- Yeah, it's not meant to. Right. The point is to break what is. Right. That which exists now to break it. And they said, well, why would they want to do that? Because they know that they're going to be able to mop up, or they believe at least they're going to be able to mop up, back up 
yeah, out of the rubble. their own upside down hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. Now they're going to be able to empower themselves and they're going to order the world. And we're not going to have any longer a, a, a nation or world based on ideas, which is what the Enlightenment and the... Um, and in the liberal revolutions of, you know, I guess the 18th century really mm-hmm. led to. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have certain inalienable rights right. anymore. It, we're now going to have a party that understands the subject, subject of truth correctly, whereas everybody else doesn't understand the subject of truth correctly. Your claim to objectivity is just the wrong subjective. T- it's just right. another story, they say. Right. And, you know, science is just one story among many. And we have a better story now because we have the power. Um, and that their goal is to break everything and then make themselves king of the rubble pile.